Father, thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it exposes the secrets of our heart. Father, help us to not be afraid to have the secrets of our heart exposed to ourselves, but help us to take those secrets and plunge them into the cross and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the purpose of even seeing the secrets of our heart are not to beat ourselves up, but to fall more deeply in love with Jesus, that the only way we can be transformed is by your grace. And so, Holy Spirit, you who glorifies Jesus by taking from what is his and making it known to us, make known to us now the riches and the wonders and the beauty and the excellence of our Savior and our King, in whose name we pray, amen. If you are able, one more time, stand for the reading of God's Word. The reading from God's Word upon which our teaching is based this morning is Romans chapter 7, as we continue our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Chapter 7, beginning at verse 13, verses 13 to 20. And Paul writes, Did that which is good then bring death to us? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God because he loves us. You may be seated. Jack Miller was the founder of World Harvest Mission. It's now known as Surge. We uh, support Jeremy and Angel Martin as missionaries who are serving with Surge. And he gave the following illustration from the life of Samuel Johnson. I don't know if you've ever heard of Samuel Johnson before. 18th century uh, writer, essayist, poet, literary critic, famous for actually producing a great dictionary. And as one who was in significant debt and needed to get out of debt, he one time wrote a novel in a week. He was also a professing Christian, part of the Anglican Church, a contemporary of men like John and Charles Wesley and Jonathan Edwards. And Jack Miller, in one of his lectures, shared uh, some of the famed Dr. Johnson's prayers that he used to keep in a prayer journal. I don't know how many of you keep a prayer journal or not, but Dr. Johnson was famous for his prayers and diaries, and so he wrote this out in his prayer journal. Pay attention, listen. Beginning in 1738, Dr. Johnson wrote, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. Good prayer. Then again in 1757, paying attention to the years, almost 20 years later, he wrote, Almighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time by a diligent application of the days remaining. 1759, enable me to shake off sloth and idleness. 1761, still going strong. 
I have resolved till I'm afraid to resolve again. 1764, my indolence has sunk into the grossest sluggishness. My purpose is from this time to avoid idleness, to rise early. Five months later, still 1764, I resolve to rise early, no later than six if I can. Then in 1765, he wrote, may I arise at eight? For it'll be much earlier than I rise now, for I often lie till two. 1769, almost 30 years later, I am not yet in the state to form many resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning at eight and by degrees at six. 1775, when I look back upon resolutions of improvement and amendments, which have year after year been made and broken, why are you trying to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and the thought is criminal. He resolves again to try to get up by eight. Forty-three years later, I think he had the spiritual gift of perseverance. What do you think? 1781, I will not despair. Help me, help me, oh my God. He resolves to rise at eight, if not earlier. Forty-three years of efforts and struggles to discipline himself. Paul puts it quite simply, I don't understand my own actions. The very thing I hate, that's what I do. And for what I do not want to do, bingo, that's where I'm going. Jack Miller says that Samuel Johnson is an example of what he calls orphan Christianity. I call Samuel Johnson the failure of resolution Christianity. Any of this resonate with you? Any of you ever try resolution Christianity? This passage that we have before us, with us, before us this morning, Romans 7, 13 to 20, here's what the Holy Spirit is laying before us. He wants to teach us that the law, while not to blame, is not adequate, is not sufficient to overcome the real problem, which is the evil, the sin in our hearts. Do you hear that? The law will not help you overcome whatever it is that is besetting in your life. Maybe you're not like Dr. Johnson who goes, well, I resolved to rise earlier than I've been lying down now because I've been sleeping till two. Maybe you're not that, but maybe you live for other people's approval or to be in control of your life. Or maybe you're just a very angry person who's not a lot of fun to be around. Whatever it is, the law, resolution Christianity, does not contain the resources and you want to know why? Not because there's anything wrong with the law. Look inside yourself. It's us. The problem with the world goes through the human heart. And so in this text before us, we want to ask two questions of the text. In a way, look at it from two perspectives. Do you really know yourself? And do you hear the music of the gospel? Do you really know yourself? I know we say we do. I know we say we believe in total depravity. Really? Let's see. And do we hear the sweet, sweet music of the gospel? Okay, verse 13. Do you really know yourself? Paul begins, did that which is good then bring death to me? 
By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, verse 13 in context is basically doing this. Paul is using it as a bridge verse between what he said before, which is that the law, good in and of itself, is actually used by our sinful nature. The fault is all in ourselves to stir up, to incite the sin in our hearts. And so verse 13 is a bridge between what he's been saying, what comes before, and what he's now saying. Because what he's now doing is he's powerfully repudiating the notion that the law is the cause of death. Verse 13 asks the question, is the law the cause of death? Because picture you're a good Israelite sitting in there. And you're sitting out in the congregation, you're hearing this letter read, and you're going, the law is what defines us. What makes Israel Israel? We've received the Torah at Mount Sinai. That's what puts us in covenant relationship before God. Yes, Rick was right. We're whiners, we're complainers, we're bitter people who keep going. Uh, can we keep going back to Egypt? But we'll take the law because it defines us with us. So now Paul is talking about things like the law incites sin, stirs up the sins in our heart. And you're a good Israelite. And you're kind of like, well, did that which is good then bring death to me? And Paul is saying, absolutely not. By no means. The law is not the cause of death. Sin is to be blamed. I love how Thomas Schreiner puts it. He says, the point being made is this. The law is not itself sinful, nor did it cause death. Sin is the ultimate cause of death. The state of affairs is that sin has taken a good thing, the law, Paul's saying it's a good thing, and deploying it for its own evil purposes. See, here's what Paul is doing. He is basically saying, let's take a look at human nature. And he knows human nature. He knows it, and he says, don't we always want to avoid responsibility, especially for our own action, our own character flaws? So you hear about the law stirring up sin, and what are you going to do? It's the law's fault. You've inherited from your first parents. Remember those guys? Mr. Adam, Miss Eve, and what they did in the garden after they ate of the fruit and they sinned? What did Adam do? Adam was a good blame shifter. He went for the two for one, buy one, get one free blame shifting because he knocked out the woman and God all in one swipe. The woman that you gave me, oh, I love that. His spiritual gift is blame shifting. She made me do it. God, it's her fault and your fault. Eve, hearing this, knew of Flip Wilson before Flip Wilson was ever created. Because what did she say? The devil made me do it. Our spiritual gift is blame shifting. But Paul, in a very powerful way, is telling us there's no blame shifting allowed here. And actually, as all the commentators go back and forth, is Paul a Christian here? Is Paul not a Christian here? I think he's evidencing. I think what he says next in verses 14 and 15 prove that he must be a Christian because he is being radically humble and radically honest about himself. And a non-Christian can't be that honest. Can't look into his heart and say what Paul is saying, for we know that the law is spiritual, that the law is good. But I'm of the flesh. I'm sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. 
Friends, that's an amazing statement. Only a Christian is going to sit there and say, it's my fault. I don't get myself. I don't get me. See, the focus here is on what indwelling sin still does to us. The state of our own beings. So let me press this home. Do we really know ourselves? Do we understand ourselves? Do you see that total depravity is not a, just a theological construct? It is the functional state of your flesh. And we're going to see we're not defined completely by our flesh. We're going to see that in a few moments. But I want you to hear this. Of your flesh, that part of your nature that is rebellious towards God, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So friends, do you recognize your own impotence and apply it to how you conduct yourself? Husbands, do you relate to your wives knowing that there's no good thing that dwells within you? That is in your sinful nature, in your flesh. And do you functionally relate with that kind of self-honesty, self-awareness, self-understanding, going, I'm not a good listener. I don't seek to understand. I don't seek to be compassionate. I seek to get my point across. I seek to be understood. Wives, do you go into your relationships with your husband knowing functionally that you don't understand your own actions? The very good you want to do, you don't do. That which you hate, you do. See, this is Paul is saying, this is why sin so powerfully impacts me. He is showing, this is where Paul is the opposite of Samuel Johnson. He's showing not the faith of an orphan, but the faith of a son. See, we all think we know ourselves. We think we're innocent. But our, where does this show up? Where do we see it most clearly? In our relationships. Let me illustrate. And I have to admit, this is where I hate being a preacher, because I have to be first in line being vulnerable and share an illustration from my life where I did not love well. So I thought I was loving my wife well. Ah, Jeff, do you know yourself? Not as much as you think you do. I thought I was loving Evie Wells. Early in our marriage, I was in seminary, and I'm soaking up the magnificent truths of Reformed theology. I mean, Sinclair Ferguson and Will Barker and Ray Dillard and all of these great men teaching the truths. We're studying the scriptures. I'm reading Calvin. I'm falling in love with this. And I was a caged Calvinist. I was a heretic seeking missile. And the chief heretic was my poor darling wife. So I would come home to her and I'd be like, Evie, you got to see the truth of this. This is amazing. And she would be interested and get it and not get it and believe it and not believe it and all this because she's not sitting in class. And I'm kind of like, this is the truth. I had no idea. It's not just what you say, but how you say it. Hmm. Do we really know ourselves? I think not. And so, and remember here, the point is not, is truth important? Because of course it is. But there's truth to how well we listen and how well we love. So what did I do? I went to my faculty advisor at school a man by the name of Tim Keller. And we're sitting down in his van in the parking lot next door to the seminary, and he's listening to me rail on my wife. Tim, you gotta make Evie see these things. You gotta make her believe these things. Can you believe this? And I'm going off heretic-seeking missile that I was. And he just looks at me so calmly, and he says, Jeff, do you enjoy being the Holy Spirit? 
cut to the quick. For I do not do what I want to do, love my wife. But I do the very thing I hate, put all sorts of pressure on her, fail to see the impact I have through my pattern of relating on another person, think I'm speaking the truth in love, but not having a clue what love really is. Maybe I shouldn't be so quick to defend myself and my actions and my attitudes. Look at Paul's words. I do not understand my own actions. Implication, we shouldn't, shouldn't be so sure of ourselves. We shouldn't be so certain that we're loving, that we're being obedient, that we're being faithful, that we're communicating the truth, because maybe we're not. See, I love again how Thomas Schreiner puts it. He says, what this means is that one cannot fully comprehend the depth of sin in oneself. The evil in our hearts is a mystery to ourselves. I ask again, do you really know yourself? The answer is no, you don't. Sin is so deep within the human heart. The flesh is so rebellious against God, so hating of God every second of every day that we can't possibly know ourselves that well. So friends, why are we so sure of ourselves? Look at verse 16. Paul continues. This, this is amazing. I actually think this is a picture of humility. That's why to me he has to be a Christian because listen to him. He says, so now if I do what I do not want, do you say that? Is that part of your prayers? I agree with the law that is good. A non-believer is not going to say that. And then he says, so, it is, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in, my, in me and again, he clarifies it a second time. That is in my flesh. So he's not just being self-deprecating. He's not putting down his own dignity. He's not putting down his worth as a human being. He's saying, I know that good, no good thing dwells within me. That is within my indwelling sin. Now look at this. Verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Look at the distinction he's making here. No longer I. The I there is his true self. His true identity. What is Paul's true identity? He's been teaching on this throughout Romans chapter 6. His true identity is who he is in Jesus Christ. His true identity, the truest Paul, is who he is, died with Jesus, buried with Jesus, raised with Jesus. The truest self is who he is seen to be by virtue of his union with Christ. As Paul wrote in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. His truest identity is who he is in Christ, which means he's able to say, it's no longer I who do it. The truest me, I'm not defined by my sin. I'm not defined by my flesh. I'm defined by who I am in Christ. Which that allows me the implication. This is why I said live out of our justification. Your justification is who you are in Christ legally, positionally, objectively. Learn to live out of that. And what that means is Paul saying, I don't have to abdicate responsibility. I can say in my flesh, since it's no longer I, the truest self, my truest self, who I am in Christ, but it's sin that lives within me, I can look at my sin and no longer be defensive. I can go, yeah. My flesh, which is naturally arrogant, self-centered, self-absorbed, doesn't know how to love, 
doesn't communicate well, doesn't listen, doesn't show empathy. The list could go on and on and on. What is it? Can you see but why, the, but why, by the way, resolution Christianity will never work? You're going to try to resolve to overcome your flesh? Paul says, there is no good thing that dwells within me. That is in my flesh. Friends, Christians who believe the gospel, who functionally are living out of the gospel, should be the least defensive people in the world. This is why relationships are what will show us and expose the level functionally. I'm not talking we don't believe and aren't saved, but functionally how much we're relying on the gospel. Because relationships will show how defensive you are, how much blame shifting you're doing, how much complaining you're doing, how angry you really are. All that comes out in relationships. It's in relationships that we learn not just what we intend, but how we come across. And Paul says, it's not I who do it. It's not my truest self. My truest self is who I am in Christ. Loved, delighted in, a son of God, rejoiced over by the Lord, sung and danced over by the Lord. That's who I am in Christ. And it allows me to look at, so now I can look at my patterns of relating and I can say, yeah, we'll get to your speck in, in your eye in just a second. Yeah, there, there may be a speck of sawdust. I can't see it because I've got this whopping two by four. That's all over the place in my, time out, we'll get to your speck in a second. You want to help me with this log? And you want to know why a Christian can be radically honest? Because he knows who he is in Christ. The log is not what defines him. He's defined by who he is in Christ. Christian, do you know yourself? So how can we be willing to face our sin, refuse to shift the blame, grow in self-knowledge, self-awareness, self-understanding? Brings us to our final point. Do we really have the music of the gospel so that we can abandon resolution Christianity? See, friends, do you know what we need in order to really hear the sweet, sweet music of the gospel? This may surprise you. It may sound paradoxical, but we need to learn to delight in the law of God. Jeff, you're kidding me, right? Haven't you been spending three weeks talking about the inadequacy of the law? Yep, it's inadequacy, but we... Still, I didn't say we rely on it, but we need to learn to delight in it. See, look again with me at verse 14. <clears throat> There's an amazing statement Paul makes here. In verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual. Now, let's not miss this seemingly tiny detail. Why does Paul say that the law is spiritual? He could have said it's holy. He said that in the past. He said it's righteous. Here he brings up it's spiritual. Which commentators tell, tell us that what he means by spiritual is its origin is of the Spirit. Its origin is from the Holy Spirit. When he uses the word spiritual, he's not defining it the way we hear it in the world. Oh, I'm a spiritual person, kind of like the force or something. He means it comes from the Holy Spirit. That means it has a specific function. Because here's where we have to let Scripture inform Scripture. What is the main job description of the Holy Spirit? Jesus told us, John chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus said the main job of the Holy Spirit is he says, he, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me for he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. J.I. Packer says the Holy Spirit is like a floodlight. 
It's a spotlight with the light upon Jesus saying, look at him. Isn't he great? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he excellence? And we'll take from what is Jesus and make it known, apply it, quicken it to our hearts, which is why we pray a prayer of illumination every Lord's Day. The prayer of illumination is not, Lord, give us good information so we can become smarter. The prayer of illumination is, Holy Spirit, we beg of you, we plead of you, we cry out to you, do your job of showing us the beauty of Jesus, because only Jesus will change us. So show us what Jesus has done for us. Now, how does that relate to the law? How does that, the law is spiritual, so the Holy Spirit's going to take from what is Christ's and make it known to us. Again, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, a very fascinating passage is Psalm 1. Because Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. So the psalmist, preaching the wisdom literature, said, the, says the man is blessed who delights in the law of the Lord. The law that he can't possibly keep. The law that is totally inadequate for overcoming and dwelling sin. So how in the world are we to delight in the law of the Lord? What needs to happen for us to delight in the law of the Lord? We have to see the gospel. See, Tim Keller gives the following biblical illustration. And notice what the man is like who delights in the law of the Lord. He's described as a tree, a strong tree that is secure and planted. And where is he planted? He's planted by streams of water so that the water can nourish him, so that the water can feed him and strengthen him and give him life. Well, Tim Keller recounts the fact that in John chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, and he tells her that he can give her some water that would cause her to never thirst again. And of course, she says, awesome, great, give me some of that water. And he says, you're looking at him. I am that water. I'm the living water. So how can Jesus offer the living water to her and to us that can make us trees planted so we can be fed by those streams of waters. It's because on the cross, Jesus experienced the ultimate thirst. You remember Jesus' words from the cross? One of the first ones were, was, I thirst. And what was happening to Jesus as he was being thirsty? He was actually becoming chaff. As he was losing water, as he was thirsting, thirsting not just physically but spiritually, losing the presence of God, losing life itself, descending to the dead for us, he was becoming chaff. And why was he becoming chaff? So he could become like chaff, blown into oblivion, blown by the wind, so we could become what? Trees planted in the streams of water. So we could have living water. He took the law's penalty upon himself. So friends, when you look into the law, don't see what you need to do. See what Christ did for you. Because the law is spiritual, and what will the Spirit do? He will take 
what Jesus accomplished and he will declare it and quicken it and apply it to your heart. Is the fact that Jesus died for you mere information or is it precious to your soul? Do you see the punishment and the curse and the penalty of the law falling upon Jesus, being absorbed into Jesus so you could be the tree planted by streams of water, fed and nourished with that living water all the time. See, if the gospel is not deep, deep music to you, if you look at your life and you're perfectionistic, you're performance-driven, you're performance-oriented, you're joyless, you're critical, you're really an angry person deep down, you see the evil in your heart, ask yourself, is it precious to you? How much is it softening your heart that Jesus took the penalty for all of that upon himself? That he died for all the junk that is in your heart. There is no good thing that dwells within me. That is in my flesh. But praise God, the law is spiritual. And the law fell on Jesus. And he really loves me. He sings and dances over me. He rejoices over me. I am not an orphan. I don't need resolution Christianity. I need to learn to live in the realm and the power of the Spirit. God, give me more grace. I'm a sinner and all I need is grace. Christian, do you know yourself? Are you willing to be radically honest with and about yourself? And if not... Do you know the deep, deep music of the gospel? Oh, as we come to the table, friends, let's pray that we begin to hear its song, that its tune will resonate in our hearts again. Father, help us not to just say we're sinners, but to know where we really sin. To not just say there's no good thing that dwells within me, but to know here's how it manifests itself. Here's how I think more highly of myself. I think I'm more important than I really am. Here's how I come across. Here's how I impact people. Here's how it shows up in my relationships. And Father, then show us the beauty of Jesus who looks at us and says, Son or daughter, all of that fell upon me. I took it all upon myself and the cross. Father, I just pray that we would hear the song of the gospel. I pray that my own heart would hear the song of the gospel. I pray, Father, that the gospel would be sweet, sweet music to my heart. And I pray that now as we come to the table, as you feed us with the benefits of Christ, as you communicate to us the glory of what he has done for us, may we drink deeply in Jesus' name. Amen.